0: We saw in verse 46 where Jesus Christ looked at them and said, which of you convinceth or rebukes me or chastens me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He's challenged them. He has challenged them. And let's say, interestingly enough, no one has taken up the challenge. No one has stepped up to the plate to rebuke Jesus. No one has stepped up to, to enumerate some law that he has violated or to reveal some command that God has given and that Christ has violated. Now, they have sought to do that by charging him of healing on the Sabbath and violating the Sabbath. but He has clearly shown them that their reasoning is false and that they themselves are prejudiced because when you consider a sheep to have more value than a man, your reasoning is false. And your, your reasoning is of no value. And so he quickly, in his answer and response to them, and uh, in, in, in answering his reason why he healed on the Sabbath, it clearly showed that the reason that they were against Christ healing them on the Sabbath was not so much that he healed, but because of what it said about him. He will make a statement that he is lord of the sabbath and that is a tremendous statement to declare that you own the sabbath that you are the master of the sabbath and he said the son of man is lord of the Sabbath." that's a powerful statement now so let's look at it a little bit further as we go down through this passage we're up to verse 47 and we're gonna we're gonna try to bring and pull this together here this afternoon he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. Again, this has become the, uh, the a statement we were talking about this morning. And that is this idea that if you know God and you know the true God, then you will know God's voice. Yes. Jesus will say that. My sheep know me. They're known to me. And he said, my sheep know my voice. Jesus also makes a statement later in this book that everyone is of the truth, heareth my voice. Right. Well, again, these are things we hear and we take for granted because we've heard them so often. Yeah. But I would like you, and I tried to share this with you on my message on uh, the Christmas Sunday we had a week ago. Think of the magnitude of that statement. Think of the utter power and declaration when Jesus says everyone that's everyone, no exceptions, everyone that's of the truth. He didn't say they hear my voice and the prophets. He didn't say they hear this one. They hear my voice. That Jesus many times the statements that he make are statements that place him in an arena by himself. That no one else can make him. Accept God or accept somebody that has a monopoly on truth as he does. Christ does have a monopoly on truth. He says, He would declare to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That is a powerful statement. It's a statement that places Jesus in a class by himself. Now, he either stated the truth or he was the biggest liar that ever lived. Or he was a lunatic. There's a book out about that. Um, it's, talk, it, it called, it's, it's titled Lord, Liar, or Lunatic. Uh, something like that. Or, or It may be lunatic, liar, or Lord. But he's, he's, can't, he's got to be one of the three. You have to determine that. He was either a liar, and that'd be pretty amazing, that a liar could influence the world like he's done. Uh, just this holiday that we just celebrated... Still, puts this nation even even though a lot of tradition has been added to it, and a lot of things that don't directly have to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that, but still, it puts an atheist and the agnostic in a tailspin. I love it. They're still fighting to try to get it removed from schools. They still try uh, fight to try to get it removed from the public square. They don't want public uh, nativity scenes and things of that nature. Even a Christmas tree going up, they 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 fight against that. And because I don't care what you do, that holiday isn't called Satanmas. It isn't called Tremus. It's called Christmas. Yeah. Amen. It's called Christmas. And you can't get away from it. The holiday inevitably points. Back to Jesus Christ. That's why they hate it. They don't care how much you decorate. They don't care how much you put a tree up. They don't care how much you give gifts to one another. They don't care how much that you even celebrate it. What they care is when you talk about the association of it with Jesus Christ. And it has yet. That day is a day that has consistently been associated with goodwill. Can't get away from it. I, I just read a story. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a diversion here. 1914, World War One, And um, in World War One, the uh, Germans were fighting, and, and primarily I believe this was in, against the English in this particular uh, time. But uh, World War I became famous for trench warfare. And because they didn't have the planes, they didn't have the tanks like we, had, like we saw in World War II. And so what they did is they dug these long trenches, and the men would get in these trenches, and of course they became, they became in many ways death traps, but from a lot of things. Of course, there is the constant bombing that comes from the enemy, and, um, but also they would rain, it would fill up with water, it was cold, and they got what was known as trench foot you've heard of trench foot, and now, of course, they, their boots near about become uh, permanent fixtures on their body because you didn't you didn't change clothes. You're out there hour after hour, and um, you didn't get a bath, you didn't get a shower, and you wore your boots day and night. And um, eventually, you do that, and you're going to you're going to start getting some uh, uh, bacteria, and things are going to break down, and they would get trench foot, and guys would get infections, different things that would come from it, um, and very very devastating, very very incapacitating. But they had this trench warfare and they would fight. You know, they would raise up out of the trenches. You know, you might, you lift your head up. The other guy on the other side's waiting for you to lift your head up out of the trench. And he's going, he's ready to shoot and put a bullet in it. And, uh, and you've got both armies in trenches. And, and they're shooting at one another as they can, or sometimes they'll come up out of their trench and make a charge across the battleground. So they have in between them what's kind of called a no man's land. It's, it's a place where no man wants to be. And they have between the two trenches of the armies this no man's land. Well, in 1914, an interesting thing happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Uh, they started. There, there became this silence, and uh, the the uh, soldiers on the I want to say it was British. But they begin to hear the German soldiers sing Silent Night. Now, they could tell what it was from the tune. They were, they were singing in German, but that, that Germans know that hymn very well. And um, they were singing that in German, and they could hear them singing over their Silent Night on Christmas Eve. Well, the, anyway, long story short, they ended up, you know, they, they talked about, they, they, they called over to the English and said, uh, you know you know, shoot. Uh, this is a, a day. Whatever we know shoot and you no know shoot, and uh, and they called and um, wasn't anything called by the generals, but the soldiers themselves on Christmas Day met in that no man's land. One of them gave another one from the other side a haircut, and, and they just they talked. They sang songs. They exchanged what they had with one another and uh, and gave them whatever uh, rations or shared things with one another. I think they even set a Christmas tree up out there in the middle and they said, today, you know, basically today we're friends, tomorrow we're enemies. Today we no shoot, tomorrow we shoot again each other. And it it was the craziest thing. But why? It was the power, and for a a 24-hour period or so, there was an absolute declaration of peace. It didn't come. There was nothing written, and and it was an amazing thing. The soldiers said, uh, "It came back, they said, we would never, it was the greatest Christmas we ever had. The the power of that thought and that holiday and the peace associated with Christ, and it caused those fighting armies to stop, meet in no man's land, shake hands, laugh together, play games together, exchange things together. One gives another, as I said, a haircut, and then they all in the evening go back to their trenches the next day, they start shooting one another. My point is, is that story after story, that day has been inevitably associated with goodwill. It is yet to become tainted. It is yet to become a day that's associated with evil, such as Halloween is, or something like that, that's associated with death. There's something about Christmas that seems to just render hope into someone's face. And my point is is this, Christ is either a liar, which makes no sense, or he was a crazy man, and I've never seen a crazy man accomplish what he did, or he was Lord, but he can't be something else than that right, right. because he claims to be Lord. He yeah. claims to be right. the sinless man. He claims, again, it's one thing to, to, to uh, say that you are sinless. It's another thing to get folks to believe it. Right. I'm not going to stand in the midst of a crowd of people who know me and have spent time around me and say, which of you reproves me of sin? Right. Find a fault in my character. No, I could get the whole crowd to raise up probably and, and say, well, well, I can name you something where you need to shape up a little bit. But nobody takes a challenge for Jesus. Right. Nobody rises up amidst lawyers and scribes and men of the law to say, we got something. No, nope, nobody says anything. And so, again, there is this intuitive knowledge. Don't be afraid. You don't ever have to be afraid of not having the truth. What you need to fear is not having a desire for truth. I'm gonna open up on truth here, maybe today in just a little while. That's critical. If you want truth, God will reveal Himself to you, and you'll know it. The Holy Spirit will come to you. What you need to fear is, be, is the life that is willing to live a lie. What you need to fear is having a heart that can be satisfied with something that isn't exactly on target. That wavers a little bit from what's real and what's right. Fear compromise. Don't fear assurance. Because if your heart is right and you want truth, I assure you that God will lead you and you will know that God is in the house. Amen. Verse 48, And then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not, well, that thou art a Samaritan? and hast a devil. Hmm. Now they use this word, a Samaritan, because they have have taken that word, and of course you know the Jews and Samaritans are very prejudiced against one another. And um, they use it much like we would use today. If we looked at a man, and we wanted to criticize his philosophy or his character, we'd say he's a liberal. We'd say he's a liberal. They would say he's a Samaritan. Because they saw the Samaritans as kind of a half-breed, kind of a a, a mixed-breed. They mixed the fear of God and the fear of uh, men or fear of other gods, if you will. So there's kind of a multiplicity of gods. They're a mixed crowd. That's where they came from anyway. They don't accept the law. Samaritans don't accept the prophets. They don't accept the Torah or the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They don't accept the prophets or the other writings in the Old Testament. They don't worship in Jerusalem. They worship in Mount Gerizim. And uh, so they are they are looking for Messiah, but they again they there's a lot of prejudice. They they are considered low life by the Jews, and so when they call Jesus a Samaritan, they're calling him low life. They're calling him an ignoramus. They're calling him somebody that's uh, his theology and his thinking is warped. You're a Samaritan. You're a de- you have a devil. Jesus answered, "I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and you do dishonor me." And I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Now here becomes the root. Now we've talked about two things in reference to sin. Let me tie a couple of things together. Here becomes the root. This is the, Jesus explains his sinlessness. He explains why he is sinless, why he is innocent, and why he can always please the Father. Because he doesn't seek his own glory. That's it. Bottom line. In other words, Jesus is saying this. I'm not selfish. I'm not self-centered. I'm not a self-promoter. I'm here to promote Father. I'm here to exalt Him. I'm here to do His will. I'm submitted to Him. And I come to honor Him. That is the essence of what life is about. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, we know it well. For what? For all have sinned and, tell me. Come short of the glory of God. Let me say it another way. For all have sinned and failed to honor God as first. And failed to live to the glory of God. They've sought, that's what sin is. Sin is seeking your own glory. Sin is making you number one. Sin is being concerned about you first. Sin is putting yourself above others. Sin is putting yourself above God, your rights above God's rights, your rights above other rights. Sin is when you value your own reputation, your own importance, and your own position more than you do that of God's. Your glory. In other words, you want to be honored. You want folks to honor you. You want folks to put their attention on you. You want folks to think about you. You want folks to consider you rather than consider God. But Jesus said, I don't seek my own glory. That's the essence of his innocence. That's the essence of his purity because he's ever seeking God. Our problem with sin is is that we live for our own glory. That was one of those things, the pride of life, the Bible calls it. And it is the seeking of self. For all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And he hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We have turned to our own way, seeking our own glory. But Jesus said, I don't. There's one that seeketh. And judges. Now, that of course is going to be the Father. The Father seeketh and judges. What do you mean the Father seeks and judges? Basically, Christ is saying, I've put my glory, I've put my judgment, I've put my reputation, I've put my future, I've put my history in the hands of Father. Now, the Father will seek and he will judge. The Father will look. The Father will measure. And the Father will glorify me if I'm worthy of glory. He will seek my glory and give me glory if I need glory and I am worthy of glory. Christ will pray that in John 7. A LITTLE LATER. Um. John 12, I think he mentions it as well. He says, Father, glorify thy name. And the Father says, I have both glorified it now and I'll glorify it again. Jesus in John 17 says, Father, uh, uh, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world then was. Now, but Jesus, he would not seek his own glory. He never promoted him on his own self. When he walked out among the crowd, he just spoke what Father told him to speak. He spoke when Father told him to speak. If that brought him shame, HE ENDURED THE SHAME. IF THAT BROUGHT HIM uh, INFAMY, HE ENDURED THE INFAMY. IF THAT BROUGHT HIM PERSECUTION, HE ENDURED THE PERSECUTION. WHEN HE COULD HAVE REACHED OUT AND CHEWED THEM UP LIKE THEY WERE A LITTLE PIECE OF MEAT. YOU THINK HE WAS ROUGH ON THE CROWD. YOU THINK JESUS ANSWERED THE CROWD AND WITH SUCH WISDOM, WELL, HE REALLY ANSWERED THEM. LET ME TELL YOU SOMETHING. HIS WISDOM WAS SO GREAT, HE COULD HAVE MADE THEM EVEN SMALLER THAN HE DID. He could have chewed them up like a little bone in a big dog's mouth, and there would have been nothing left of them. They would have been such a raw piece of meat left laying there in the middle of the road that everybody would have walked away with their noses in the air at the Pharisees and entirely written them off, but Christ did not do that. He only spoke what Father told him to speak. He only said what Father said. He didn't seek his own glory. He never tried to defend himself. He would always speak for truth. He would always say what was right. HE NEVER CONCERNED HIMSELF WHEN FOLKS GOT OFFENDED AT HIM or WHEN FOLKS DIDN'T THINK RIGHT ABOUT HIM WHEN FOLKS DIDN'T YOU SEE THAT'S A PROBLEM WE HAVE TODAY WITH A LOT OF PREACHERS THEY PREACH what gets them an amen. They preach what gets people to appreciate them. They preach what people like to hear because they seek their own glory. And it's hard to find men who will preach and speak truth and not worry about the response from the crowd, not worry about whether they're hated or loved, not concern themselves with whether or not they get an amen or an oh me, and not concern themselves that when they go away, oh no, oh no, you know, I, I got to change this. I can't preach that. That's too hard. They speak what God gives them to speak they speak the truth as God gives them and that's what Christ does and that may be good it may be hard it may be something that's tight it may be something that's soft it doesn't matter it's when God wants it and as he wants it and, and by so doing you are then putting your life and your glory in the hands of Father yeah. All right. and what does the Lord say about the humble? He will exalt the humble He will abase the proud God gives glory to them who honor him yes. and God gave glory to Christ because Christ honored Father. So I want you to see that that's what he's saying. Now, there's one that seeks and judges, that's a father and Christ has put his glory. He had to. He trusted Father. You think about that. He went to the cross. The Father's will was that Jesus should die on the cross. He's been shamed. He's been ridiculed. And he's he's deserved none of it. But he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He put everything in the hands of the Father. He said, the Father loves me because I lay my life down for my my friends. And, And on and on. I give my life for the sheep. And so but when he got there and he died, he put his life in the hands of Father. And guess what Father did? Father put him at the right hand. Father said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to glorify you. He gave him the glory that he was worthy of. When men shamed him, God glorified them. Now, you're going to have to trust God for that in your life. How many times, though, when we get shot at, when it gets tough, when submission means difficulty, when you're misunderstood, when you have to give and it hurts, When nobody appreciates you, when you serve and serve much and nobody even noticed, when you give your input and it was tossed out like a rag, when you pray and somebody was blessed but nobody knows that you prayed, nobody mentioned it, it may have mentioned others' contribution, your contribution got left out. You have given and sacrificed, given and sacrificed, you've given when it hurt. And nobody knows. And it seems as even nobody cares. But you must not concern yourself. Or your reputation gets attacked. Or something worse for us, the reputation of your child. The reputation of your friend. The reputation of your wife. And we run to the defense. We run to defend ourselves. Blah, 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 blah. Because it's hard for us sometimes when we're shot at to not shoot back. Now sometimes God will let you shoot back. Sometimes God will say, drop the hammer. Sometimes he says, take it. You say what I say and you say no more and you receive it. You receive the persecution you don't worry about being a, a, a pleased. You don't worry about being applauded. You don't worry about being uh, uh, thanked or, or, or being uh, someone being grateful for you. You just concern yourself with obeying me. And what you're doing when you do that is you're putting your reputation, you're putting your life in the hands of God and you'll trust Him to judge. And if you're worthy, you can rest assured that God will see you amply rewarded. Amen. Now, he, this, in verse 51, Christ is going to make the third great statement. We're going to put him together again that is just absolutely powerful. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. I want to put these great statements that Christ has made together in chapter 8. That Just powerful. Verse 12, back in John 8. Look at it again. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then in verse 31 and 32, If you continue my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then the verse we just read in verse 51, If a man keep my saying, the word saying there is the same word as word. If you continue in my word, my logos, If a man keep my Logos, that's what he's been concerned with all through this passage. If a man continues in my Logos, you cannot receive my, my teaching, the expression of my message because my Logos is not in you. My word is not in you. You can't hear my word, my Logos. And here he says, if a man keep my Logos, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Look what Jesus has just stated. That's why I said he has to be Lord, lunatic, or liar. He has looked at men and says, I am, I. He didn't say me and somebody else. He didn't say me and this one out there. He he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall have the light of life. Again, I remind you from what I preached last Wednesday. This is a peasant. He owns nothing but the clothes on his back. He has no house. He has no donkey. His pockets are no doubt empty. He has a questionable upbringing, not an upbringing, but a questionable beginning. It appears he was born of fornication. He is a lowly carpenter. He is born in a stable. He is a man of meager, poor means. He's a peasant, and he stands in the midst of lawyers. He stands in the midst of scribes. He stands in the midst of the religious elite. He stands in the midst of judges. He stands in the midst of wealthy people and poor people alike, and he says, if you'll follow me, you will understand the trueness of life. Light is truth, and he said, if you follow me, you have the light of life. That is, you will understand what life is really meant to be, if you will follow me." That's powerful. I I, I hope you could just think about that. I mean, how would you feel if I stood up like that? Take yourself. How many of you would dare stand in a crowd of people, and there's a whole bunch of them already got stones in their hand, they want to stone you. They're they're looking out to kill you. And you would stand in the midst of them and say, if you follow me you'll know what life's all about. I'm the one that's got the monopoly on life. I have the truth of life. If you follow my life, I will show you how life is really meant to be lived by God, and you will know what, lo- what living is really all about if you follow me. I wouldn't state that. Now, I would be a lunatic or a liar, but not him. He's Lord. He says it. Nobody rebukes him. He says it, and folks believe him. He says it, and you're like, let me follow. He says it and men drop their money bags and follow. He says it and men leave their fishing nets and follow. He says it, oh glory. And men come up out of the fig tree and follow him. He says it and men listen and they, they, they drop their, their possessions and they leave all to follow him. Anybody else does that, like a Jim Jones or, 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 or the guy in, in Waco, Texas? Anybody else? And we think that's just what it is. It's a cult. It's a crazy. And you might get a few hundred people to follow you. But I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to get a generation after generation to follow you. You'll get a few crazies that will die with you in your compound. But Jesus Christ will have generation. People are still dying for him. Hundreds are still giving their lives for Christ. And they're still believing him that he is the light of God of life. Then he says, first of all, he's got a monopoly on life, and then he makes a statement he's got a monopoly on truth. If you follow me, you'll know truth. And that truth will liberate you from your sin. Now he declares that he's got a power that's greater than sin. I ask you, what power do we know, at least on a human level, that's any greater than the power of sin? when you think about it in this world. Sin has conquered kings. Sin has conquered husbands. It's conquered wives. It's conquered children. It's conquered men. It's conquered women. It has conquered presidents. It's conquered poor. It's conquered rich. It has conquered men who have been faithful for years, and sin will somehow enter in, and they'll lose out in the last days of their life. Sin has taken men who were the wisest of men. It conquered a Solomon. It conquered a Samson. It conquered a David, a man after God's own heart. It conquered a Moses, a Man who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. It conquered a Joshua. It conquered men. We have not found a man that sin has not at some time in his life conquered him. But finally somebody rose up that sin could not conquer. Whoo! Glory to the Lamb of God. It is none other than Jesus Christ. And He declares, I've got a power greater than sin. I am sinless and I can liberate you from your sin. If you'll get my Logos, if you'll receive my message and walk in it, you're going to know truth and that truth is going to liberate you from your sin. Nobody can declare that. This world will steep you more in sin. This world will lead you greater in sin. But only one says, I'll lead you out of sin. Yes. That's powerful. Then he makes his third statement and says, whoever follows me, or keeps my saying rather, whoever keeps my saying shall never, never see death. Now watch what happens here. Let's understand what he was saying by that. Verse 52. They change his words. I think their, their understanding of this is a little different. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. He didn't say that. He said he should never see death. He didn't say he should never taste of death, did he? That's not what he said. Now, I'm going to read this rest of this passage because there's another verse that plays into this, and I want to explain that. Verse 53. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. There again, here is Christ not seeking his own honor. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. He is telling them, You guys got a problem here. You say God's your God, but God's honoring me. Why don't you honor me? God has honored my life. Why don't you? Hey, the Father's done that in several ways. Well, he did it at his baptism. A voice spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. It will happen on the Mount Transfiguration. The Father will honor him. But the Father is also honoring him by the power. Which one of those guys are going around raising the dead? Which one of those guys are going around with the power to open up blinded eyes and doing that? No one's doing that but Jesus and those who he sends out. Those other cats aren't doing it. God is honoring this man. They will have to admit it. Nicodemus say, we know that you're a man sent from God. No man could do the work you're doing except to be sent from God. They have to honor that. They have to see God is honoring this man. Even them themselves have to admit, as much as they've tried to get him, he has escaped them every time. And they don't get him until he surrenders. If he didn't want to surrender, they'd have never got him. So... Verse 55, Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced, notice, to do what? To see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Mm. Well, that was a straw broke camel's back. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself. Those same stones they brought when they brought that woman in the midst. Law said stoner. They had the stones there, folks. The stones were there that they were going to stone the woman with or at least try to use it. They put the stones down there. Here's the stones. Here's the woman. The law says stone the adulterer. How about it? You guys got the stones, you're without sin, go, go at it. Now they're going to pick those same stones up to throw at him. Interesting is they were ready coming in to stone the woman that sinned. Instead, they're going to stone the man who is without sin. Right. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. I'd love to see that one. I'd love to see now He hid himself. What did he do? Become invisible? I don't know. Did he just cover their eyes? Well, he's capable of doing that. Uh, He's capable of just uh, for a moment. I mean, he's still there. He's visible by some and not. If he can open blinded eyes, he can blind open eyes. Amen. So I don't know how he did that, but he hid himself and just walked through the midst of them. And so here they are. And what's funny about it is he walks out and as he goes by and as he's walking out of the temple and all of this is happening on a Sabbath day. All of this is happening on a Sabbath day. And as he walks out, the, the great thing about it is, is that whole bunch declared themselves to be a seeing crowd, that they knew it. They know what's right, and they're not blind. Jesus says, you're sinners, you're bound, and basically you're blind. And uh, Jesus, of course, they wouldn't receive his teaching. He, they want to stone the sinless one um, uh, because they basically feel they're right. So Christ walks out, and you know what he does? He finds a blind man that was blind from birth, and he heals him. And that guy, they wouldn't hear Jesus, but that guy gets to go back in and preach to them. (laughs) Oh, read John chapter 9. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible to see this guy born blind. He doesn't have the education they have. Who was it that healed you? He said, well, I already told you that. Well, you want to believe in him? And says, well, we don't know who he is. Well, that's an amazing thing. Here he is a man. We never heard anybody opening up someone's eyes that's been born blind, and yet here's someone that did that, and you don't know him. I find that pretty big, fellas. You guys are missing out. You just admit your own ignorance because you got somebody in your midst that has done something that's never been done in all of history, and you don't know him. Right, come on. Woo! Right, right. Oh, that guy was able to go back in there, and he really yeah. put it to him. But all this happens on the same day. And now what I want to show you, though, I want to tie together. Jesus said, this man shall never see death. They said, you say a man will never taste death. He didn't say that. Matter of fact, go over to Hebrews chapter 2, and it we'll talk about Christ. That he, by the grace of God, would taste death for every man. Christ tasted death. We will taste death. If he doesn't come, we're going to taste death. If you die before the rapture, you're going to taste death but I don't see death." Notice how he says, and I want to connect it with the way he talked about Abraham. Abraham, he said, rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. Wait a minute. Here you are, Jesus Christ. You are living 2,000 years after Abraham. What do you mean Abraham saw you? Well, when you go over, Let's look at something. Let's put it with a verse in Hebrews. I quoted to you uh, this morning. Look over in Hebrews, if you will, chapter 11, that famous verse. Go down to chapter 11, verse 13. And this includes Abraham. talks about him in verse 8. And verse 9 talks about him sojourning in the land of promise, looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Then it talks about Sarah. And immediately following Abraham and Sarah, and it and and talks about in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but what? Having seen them afar off. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham was a man of vision. Abraham was able to look beyond the tent. Abraham was able to look beyond his small family. Abraham was able to look beyond only having one son. He was able to look beyond the age of his wife. He was able to look beyond the age of her womb. He was able to look beyond the weakness of his own body. And what he saw was a Christ that was going to come. What he saw was a city which has foundations. Ah, praise God. A city with foundations. A city that cannot be moved. A city that's built and established. It's never going to be destroyed. It's never going to be brought down because God is its builder and God is its maker. And he saw these promises afar off. He never received it, but he had the vision and he saw it. In other words, even though Abraham knew, I'm going to pass off the scene. Ah, but I'm telling you, there's one that's going to come. God promised a seed and God's going to raise up my seed. When God gave him Isaac and said, I want you to take him up and offer him. Abraham offered him up and was ready to kill him and the Bible tells us why because he believed that God would raise him from the dead Abraham believed in the resurrection Abraham looked forward and saw the resurrection of the dead oh glory and Abraham's the only man in scripture that becomes an example or a prototype of God a type of the father I should say Uh, Moses is a type of Christ Joseph is a type of Christ Joshua is a type of Christ there were many men who were types of Christ but there's only one man who was a type of the father and that was Abraham and he took his son up to slay him and delivered his son up for a sacrifice unto God and that became a type of what God was going to do 2000 years later at Calvary the father is going to offer up his own son for God so loved the world and he gave his own the begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and he saw that he saw the resurrection HE SAW THE SACRIFICE, HE SAW WHAT GOD WAS GONNA DO, BUT HE SAW IT IN THE SENSE OF VISION AND FAITH LOOKING BEYOND THE CIRCUMSTANCES TO SEE WHAT WAS TO COME. And I submit to you that that's the same way that Jesus Christ speaks of him. those who keep his word. They will never see death. I'm going to tell you something. I know there's a possibility that my body will, will get laid in the tomb and that I, my spirit and soul will leave this flesh and my body will be laid in the grave in a casket. I know that. But I never see that in my vision. When I talk about what I see, I see the kingdom of God coming to earth. I see rapture. I see resurrection. I see glory. I see reward. I see ruling and reigning with Christ. I don't see a grave as my destiny. I don't see a casket as my eternal dwelling place. Why? Because I'm in Jesus Christ. That's why. You and I don't look forward to a funeral. We look forward to the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. If you will keep the words of Christ, you will never have a or dismal outlook. Your outlook, your vision, your sight will be always be beyond the grave and see him the glory of God. Hallelujah. That's what Jesus said. He didn't say I may not taste of death. I might taste death, but it'll be a little taste and I'll spit it out and get a glorified body. Hallelujah. Woo! Praise yeah. the Lord. I just might have to chew it for a little bit yeah. and then I'm going to raise up right. and ruin That's rain with it, yeah. hay, Hallelujah! Right. Yeah. Yeah. because I am looking to receive a body fashioned like unto the glorious body of Jesus yeah. Christ. Whoever keeps his the logos yeah. Yeah. will never have a vision of death right. yeah. and defeat. His vision will always be yeah. 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 life and victory. Yeah. 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 That's what he says. Now, let's put all this together. I've told you about those great statements and great statements that Jesus has said. He's declared himself to have a monopoly on life, he's got a monopoly on truth, and he's got power over the grave. <laughs> Woo! That's powerful. That's powerful. And all of the midst of that, this is all for my disciples. And what he said in this is he said, I, my disciple, is basically this. He's going to have life. When I'm his leader, he's going to have life. He's going to have truth. He's going to have resurrection. And he's going to live in victory over sin. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Then will be got to pass the brought to pass the saying, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? How will this man have life? How will this man have truth? With the life of Christ, with the truth of Christ, with the vision of Christ. Oh, let me tell you, but how is all of that going to be possible? How am I going to be able to have all of that? How am I going to be able to possess all of that? I will be able to have it and possess it because he will take sin out of my life. When he takes sin out of my life, he takes the sting of death out of my life. Woo glory. When he takes sin out, then I can find what life life is all about because sin is death. Sin is destruction. Remove sin and you can have life. whoa right. glory. Right. When I take sin, it's darkness. When I take sin, it's the lie and it's darkness. But when he gives me light, hallelujah, that overcomes the darkness and overcomes the death and overcomes the defeat. And so that I can live in Jesus Christ above the power of sin. I'm right. telling you, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you will live in victory over sin. Yeah. And your life will not be a life of habitual sin. It will be a life of habitual righteousness. Right. Thank you, Jesus. Now, quickly I want to put some things. I want you to notice the parallel chapter. 1 John chapter 3. I want you to see this. And I want you to understand it. And I want to bring this home. I am talking about the covenantal discipleship. Those who live in covenant with Christ live in victory over sin because they have life, they have truth, they have light, they have truth, they have light. It brings liberty to them and it brings the liberty of, from sin. 1 John chapter 3. Let's notice this parallel. I want you to notice the similarity of language. Now it's the same author, but the similarity of language between chapter 3 of 1 John and John chapter 8. Scenario is different. In John chapter 8, Christ is on the earth and the words are his. John's just recording what Christ has done. Now, Christ is at the right hand of the Father and John himself is sending a message. Why? Because there has risen up in Christendom a mindset that says you can live in habitual sin and still see God. That's the mindset. That's the philosophy that has risen up in the ranks of Christianity That you can live in disobedience, you can live in rebellion, you can live in lawlessness, and thereby... You're still okay with God. You can still have fellowship with God. You can still walk with God. You can still talk with God. You can hate your brother, and you can do all this stuff externally because it's just your flesh. Christ really wasn't flesh. He just comes in the spirit. Uh, he's not. He really didn't come in the flesh. He really didn't live this life in flesh because flesh itself is inherently evil. Flesh is wicked. It's not made by God. It's made by a lesser God. It's an evil thing. Christ didn't have a real body. He was just kind of a spiritual thing, and. Uh, Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do in your body. It matters basically what you're on the inside. And that is spirit. So it's the spirit that matters. The flesh counts for nothing. And they have basically said that Christ did not come in the flesh. And they've destroyed that. And John writes to tell them, you're wrong, buddy. He did come in the flesh you're an antichrist he lived this life in the flesh he lived a sinless life in the flesh and if you've been born of god you're going to live the same life and if you're not living that life you're not born of god and you're not of god you're of the devil Woo! now let's see what he says let's get that chapter three behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I'm going to read that the children of God. Now I, I'm okay in doing it I don't know it says the sons of God but the same word is later in the passage translated children in verse 10. it's the same word and I, I'm, I'm just going to read it you, it's the same Greek word. I'm just going to translate it the way the translators translated it later in the passage. I don't know one place they translated sons, one translate translated children it's the same Greek word. I want to read that because you miss the continuity of the passage. because they didn't use the same word. So I just want to read it using the same word in the same translation that they use later. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it doth not yet appear... That word is translated later, manifest. So you can put that together. It's not yet manifest. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, when he is manifest, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now this talks about a future manifestation, a future appearance. We are now the children of God. We are walking as Christ is, so are we in this world. That's the theme, John mentions that, that we are living in his purity. We are doing what he says to do. Christ is now hated, and we, he's still hated. Oh, yeah. This world still hates Jesus, right. all right? So we're hated. Yes. Christ is ridiculed, we're ridiculed. Christ is vilified, we're vilified. Christ is misunderstood, we're misunderstood. Christ is thought to be... Non-existent, we're not thought to be non-existent, but we are thought to be local. All right, that we're crazy. But the fact of the matter is, right now, we are the children of God. He's the Son of God. We're sons of God. We're the children of God. And we are living as the children of God, walking in this world under the guidance of the Father, disciples of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, he said, it's not manifest what we're going to be. But he said, wow. In other words, now we're children with children's rights, Sonship rights. Airship rights. But what's it going to be like him that day? Well, we'll see him as he is. As he is, we are now in this world, but we will see him as he is. In his glory. He's no longer going to be having on peasants' robes. He's no longer going to be donned with the robe or the garment of a rabbi. He's not coming back as a rabbi. He's coming back as the king. Ah, hallelujah. You have a kingly garment on and it'll be written down the side of it king of kings and lord of lords He'll not have one crown on his head. He's going to have many crowns on his head. Whoo! Glory to God. His vesture will come dipped in blood. It's the blood of vengeance. When he came the first time, he shed his blood. It was his blood. This time it's their blood. He dips his vesture in the blood. It is splattered upon the garments of him because he will shed the blood of the wicked. He's not coming to shed his own blood. He's coming to shed the blood of the wicked and to destroy destroyed them and he comes with that vesture dipped in blood but you and i are going to look on him and see him be with him in his glory we dressed in robes of white and christ before us in glorious white and bright and shining glory and majesty my what a king what a priest what a god what a prophet all of that how are we going to live in that world and i've said it before but we are then going to live in a world not where selfishness abounds but righteousness abounds we know how it is to live in a world where around every corner there's selfishness where you're rebuked your thought weird we know how it is to preach the gospel in a world where people want to uh refute you and they want to speak evil against you. We know how it is to have Christianity attacked. We know how it is to have the liberals in control of the educational institutions. We know how it is to have abortion be the mainstay of the day. We know how it is to live where there's violence and crime on every corner. What's it going to be like to live in a world where peace abounds? What's it going to be like to live in a world where the wolf and the lamb can play together? What's it going to be like to live in the world where righteousness is on every corner? There are no pubs. There are no places of ill repute. There are are no bad bookstores. There are no bad video stores. There are no dance halls. There are no places of ill repute. There are no prostitute houses. There are no drug houses. Probably very few if any clinics and hospitals because there's going to be a universal health throughout the land. The light increased. Uh, there's going to be universal righteousness. Everywhere you go, Christ will be acknowledged. It is not going to be a world of atheism. Those in control of the educational institution will be saints. Those in control of the government will be saints on every seat of judgment will be a saint every man will understand the law of god and the righteousness and the glory of god is going to fill the earth i know what it's like to live in a world of sin what's it going to be like to live in a world of righteousness i know how i need to act in this world i got to preach i got to be a part of the church i got to build the church what's it going to be like to live in that world now we're seen as the children of God, but then we're going to be seen as the bride, the wife of Christ, as governors or rulers. Now we're just carpenters. We're just nobody's going around doing our thing. Then we sit on thrones. Yeah. But we will see him as he is. The point is, how do we live now? By seeing him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now we endure the cross. Now we despise the shame. Now we endure the contradiction of sinners. Now we endure the chastisement of the Father. Because that's what Christ did. That's how Christ lived his life. And we live our life as he is. But the day is coming when all of that is past. There'll be no cross to bear. Hmm, glory to God. There'll be no contradiction of sinners. There will be no resisting unto blood. There will be no rebuke coming from the street. There will be no wickedness abounding in the land. Ah, but I'll tell you what, we know how it is to live in this world as the peasants, but then we will be kings. (laughs) Woo, with him, glory to God. Yes, how's it gonna be like? What are we gonna do? The same thing we do now, we're gonna look at Jesus. What do you want us to do, Lord? What do you want us to do? What are we doing now? Look him to Jesus, uh, following his example, following his lead, bearing the cross. What are we going to do then? Look at Jesus. uh, How's he ruling? How's he reigning? Show us, Lord. Lead Uh, us. uh, uh, Tell us. uh, He's not going to cease to be our shepherd. He's not going to cease to be our Lord. He's not going to cease to be our king. He will forever be our governor. He will forever be our Lord. He will forever be our husband. He will forever be our good shepherd. And we will honor him we will follow him now watch what he does every man that hath this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure if you have this hope in him in christ you will purify yourself even as he is pure whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law now we have to get a definition of sin it is, the word here, transgression of the law, is one Greek word. It is other places translated as iniquity. And because iniquity shall abound. The word is, I think it's the Greek word anomia. I may not have that right. But nomia is law. A is against law. And, and the, the word here is the idea of lawlessness. Living without law. Living against law. Living in rebellion against government. So he says that sin is iniquity. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is living a life in opposition to God's law. Christianity is living in agreement with God's law. Mm -hmm. He tells us whoever commits sin, whoever practices sin, is a habitual violator of law. He is living outside of law. And we know that he was manifested. Now, here's that word manifested, the same word as appear back in chapter 3, verse um, 2. It's also mentioned it in chapter 2 and verse 28, when he shall appear. He was manifested. Now, notice two appearances. The rapture is not his appearing. Understand that? The rapture, he's seen by us, but not the world. There are two comings. There are two appearances whereby the whole world sees him. The first was in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And all that was there in that area, the whole world saw him. Saint entered the whole crowd, saw this man as he walked in shoe leather. But I'm telling you, Although then every eye didn't see him, the day is coming when every eye will see him. When he comes back for the second appearance, oh, glory, he will appear the second time without sin. Oh, glory to God, I'm the salvation. And every eye is going to behold him. There's a second manifestation coming. The first manifestation John is talking about, he said that future manifestation, that future appearance, I can't tell you exactly how it's going to be to live in that world. I'm just going to tell you we're going to look at him and see what he does, and that's we're going to live. But what about that first appearance? Why did he come? Why was he manifested? He was manifested to take away our sins. How can he do that? Because and in him is no sin. You can't take away sins unless you yourself have not been conquered by it. Hallelujah. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Again, context and the meaning of this word is not... The the committing of a one-time act. It is the idea of a habitual lifestyle. A man living in sin. A man doing. Notice verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. See the word doeth in verse 7? The same word as committeth. Back up in verse 4. Same thing in verse 8. He that committeth sin doeth and committeth. In verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. Verse 7, he talks about those that do righteousness or commit righteousness. In verse 8, he that does sin or commits sin. The doeth and committeth are the same Greek word. No difference. And it's the idea of a habitual act. Something that is carried on. It's a lifestyle. It is, it is how a man is living his life on a daily basis. And, and that's the idea. He's not talking about one act of righteousness or one sin. Sometimes sinners do one act of righteousness and sometimes Christians commit one act of sin. But we're not talking about one action. We're talking about a lifestyle. Sinners don't have a life of righteousness and the righteous don't have a life of sin. Right. Sinners don't live habitually in righteousness. They don't habitually do what is good and those who are Christians don't habitually do what is evil. Right. That's the passage. Now notice what he says. He that committeth sin, he that Does sin is of the devil. Did you hear him back in John 8? You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. John remembers that teaching of Jesus and he goes all the way back and pulls out of that teaching of Christ on the time in John chapter 8 that he recorded himself in his gospel and when he has to confront the Gnostics of his day that want to introduce a lifestyle of sin to Christianity. He reaches back to the fundamentals of the teaching of Christ. And he tells him again. Jesus said, whoever commits sin, same word as here. Whoever does sin is the servant of sin. And he said, the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free right. indeed. Ah, hallelujah. And went on to say to those folks as Pharisees, you are of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth for there was no truth in him. And when he speaketh, he speaketh a lie because he's a liar and the father of it. Yep. And John is just reaching back and pulling that teaching forward and saying, you guys who are living in habitual sin, you are violators of law. You are living against law. That's what sin is. It is a violation of God's law, continual disobedience to God's law. And he says that's in contradiction to the first appearance of Christ. Why did he even come? Why was he manifested? He was manifested to take away sin. Verse 8, he that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. That's what he said in John 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he what? Destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil in John 8? He was a murderer and he was a liar. That was his primary works. He brings falsehood and that falsehood kills. He brings deception and that deception pulls you away from truth, pulls you away from the light. It pulls you into darkness and it destroys you. It destroys your fellowship with God. It'll destroy your fellowship with your brother. It'll destroy your fellowship with your wife. It'll destroy your fellowship with your fellow man. I'm telling you, sin will kill you and it'll. Kill everything around you. That's just the way it is. But Jesus came to get rid of those works. He came to destroy the murder. Oh, glory. Oh, the devil came and destroyed life. Christ came and destroyed death. Oh, hallelujah. The devil came to destroy the truth. Christ came to destroy the lie. Praise the Lord. The devil came and destroyed and wanted to destroy the light. Christ came and destroyed the darkness. He came and destroyed what the devil built and he tore it down. How can we claim to live a life uh, that is according to the life of the devil when we have been brought into the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ? How can we live in darkness uh, when we're under the light of life? Uh, how can we live in the lie when we walk in the truth? How can we walk in death uh, when we know the resurrection? doesn't it work. It's a contradiction in terms. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. For seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Here it is, verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Did you see, if I can read this together, let me read. Chapter 3, and verse 1 and 2, and then skip directly to verse 10, substituting the word children for sons. It's the same word. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Notice, we're the children of God. I'm sorry. What love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the children of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Verse 10, in this the children of God are manifest. Notice, number one, the world doesn't know us. Look, we are the children of God but the world doesn't see it that way. The world doesn't know us. They don't know our life. If you know us, you'll be one of us. It's just that way. Mm -hmm. The only way you can know what it is to become a child of God or to to be a child of God is to be one. You have to become one. Mm -hmm. Then you'll know what it is. But the world doesn't see us as children of God. They see us as followers of a religion. They see us as a sect, as some kind of social club. But they don't see us as the true children of God. So we're here. So how are we seen? How are we visible in this world? Not through the world's announcement. We're not visible because the world puts a tag on and say, if anybody wants to know what a child of God is, go over there and see those Christians. Those are the children of God. The world doesn't know us. That's right. So how do we know the children of God? How can we distinguish between the children of God and the children of the devil? Here's how you know. The children of God do what's right, Right. habitually. <laughs> the children of the devil sin habitually. The children of God live in obedience to the law of God. The children of the devil live in lawlessness. Oh, glory to the Lamb. The children of God do what is right. The children of the devil do what is wrong. That's how you come tell the difference. So when we have a church world that wants to go out there and live like the world and live like the devil, then that's exactly what they are. They are children of the world and the world knows them. The world knows them because they live like the world. They act like the world. They see the world. And the world knows them, but the world doesn't know us. Why do y'all shout the way you do? Why do y'all go to church the way you do? Why do y'all listen to that preaching again and again? Why do you listen to that teaching over and over? Why do you read that crazy Bible? Why do you go down there and worship Sunday, Wednesday? Y'all go to church all the time. Why do you do those things? Because we are the children of God. Because we are the sons of God almighty. And we delight in doing what is right. You don't know us. You don't understand this. But I will tell you, look at the life. We are seeking and we are living habitually and the word of God right. the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in them that walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That's right. That's yes. This business we love one another I, there is a it's this blunt you, you may not like this but I'm going to tell you I was speaking with a pastor, a friend of mine. And he was telling about a young man whose wife had left him. It was a tragic story. This young man has been devoted to God, has served and worked and labored, and his wife left him. Children gone, wife gone. Three or four children. And uh, this wife gets up with another man, fornicates, commits adultery, gets pregnant. Has the baby. Has had? I, I believe now has already had the baby. True story. And this pastor was talking with him. The, the, the young man is devastated. But there's still hope that the marriage could be restored. She could come home. She could come home. You might say that's hard. She never married. She never married a man. She just committed adultery. She went out and had a relationship. And, and uh, she never... She never married him. She had an affair. Ended up with a child. But he, he said in his grief, if she came back and repented, and turned around, he said, I can never forgive her. The pastor looked at him and he said, then you're not saved. Let me tell you something, folks. We often want to measure how much forgiveness we can extend But I'd like to ask you, how oft has Christ had to forgive you? How much have you been astray and shamed him? If this woman would repent and turn and come home, the example in Scripture is Hosea and Gomer. She became a prostitute. He had to go down and buy her off the slave block and take her back as his wife for an example of God being committed to Israel. And his life be an example, and took back his wife who had prostituted herself and took her back as his wife. And this man could receive her as his wife. Would it be difficult? Who said it wouldn't be? Nobody said it's easy. But he would have to forgive her. Look, folks, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and turns and says, I repent, forgive him. How often shall I forgive my brother, Lord, till seven? Seven times? No, till 70 times seven. You, if your brother repents and turns to you, you don't have an option to not forgive him unless you want to sin. That's not an option. You forgive because that's what Christ has done for us. We are to forgive one another. We say, oh, that's too hard. Is it? Where would you be if God applied the same rule to you that you want to apply to somebody else? Were you so righteous? That you didn't need. He forgave you of years of transgression, years of unfaithfulness, years of shaming him, years of being away from him. And he forgave you in an instant and brought you into his glorious kingdom. And since then, there have been times as you in your Christianity, since then there have been times that you have in a moment been unfaithful. In a moment you shamed him when you should have honored him. In a moment when you were should have been faithful, you were unfaithful. You turned to God in mercy and said, Dear God, have mercy. I'm sorry. And tell me what did he do? He didn't say, no, I can't forgive you anymore. He forgave you. He restored you. I'm not telling you there's not consequences. I'm not telling you that there's not sometimes sanctions because certain sins bring consequences. But I'm telling you in reference to the forgiveness of God and the forgiveness of us towards a brother, that's not optional. We forgive, we receive, we restore and we bring them back into the body of Christ, and we accept them as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ because they have asked for forgiveness of God, and they have repented of their sin and turned back to him, and that's not an optional thing. You say, I could never do that. Then you're not saved, or you're not thinking right, one or the other. Now, this man was saved, but in his grief, And in yourself, sometimes you think that's too hard. I can never do it. That's not the right thing to say. You should say it this way. I can't do that unless God helps me. I'll not be able to do that unless Jesus helps me. But if you'll lean on him, he'll help you. If you'll look to him, he'll be with you. If you lean on yourself, you will fail. You don't have the ability. And I will tell you that from the beginning. You can't live righteous out of your own energy and just your own strength and and your own, depending on your own being. If you're going to live righteous, the righteous, the just shall live by faith. We live not by faith in mankind. We live by faith in God. And how can I tell you? Yes, I can forgive my brother. Yes, I can forgive them. I'm not telling you that on my feeling. I'm not telling you that on my power. I'm telling you that I know a God who has helped me numerous times to forgive, who has helped me thousands and hundreds of times to be forgiven and to forgive, and he'll do it. I'm telling you we can't call ourselves brethren unless we love one another. Don't tell me you're a child of God and you hold animosity in your heart against your brother. Don't tell me you're a child of God and you got grudges in your heart against one another. Don't tell me you're a child of God and you can't reach out and love once again if you're battling with it and you're seeking. Okay, I can understand that. But reach up and get a hold of the master. Get a hold of the sinless one. Get a hold of the powerful one. Get a hold of the light of life and say shine on the path again. Give me truth. Give me power. Give me grace and watch God do it in your life. Some of you young ones, you may say, well, I don't see no heart. You ain't lived long enough to get hurt. You live long enough and there's going to be a time in your life you're going to get hurt real bad. Someone close to you is going to drive a dagger in your heart. And then they're going to probably turn if they love God or if they have any sense of Christ and say, I have wronged you will you please forgive me? You do not have the liberty to say no and stay saved. If you are going to manifest your sonship, you must say to that person, yes, I forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, will become the end of the story. Have fervent charity. Among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. John has to do this. Let me tell you something. No church, no church that preaches lawlessness can maintain peace. No church that allows its people to live in habitual sin can keep peace. The only way we can have peace is if we have love and righteousness. And I'm telling you right now, we're going to have to put up with one another. You guys are going to have to learn to put up with me. But you ain't so easy yourself to get along with, okay? I've got to learn to put up with you. I don't have the choice. Some folks say, I've had the times I've folks have asked me, well, how do you do that? Well, how, how do you go back? How do you love them? How do you, how do you do? I ask the question, how can you not do it? The reason I do it is because of who I am. I'm a Christian. I know the principles. I've had to ask for forgiveness. I've had to go back and say I'm sorry. And if someone says they're sorry, I am duty bound to forgive them. I don't have a choice. I don't have the right to hang them out on a hook and say, "Well, we're going to give you ten days in the pokey anyway." I need my place to do. My place is to say, "You're restored." And you're my brother. And I will love you. And I will work to love you beyond feelings. Because feelings may be opposed to it for a while. You may find that your feelings want to still chew their head off. But you don't live by your feelings, you live by your faith. Amen. Oh, it got too quiet on me right there. Must have struck a little note somewhere. You don't have a right to do that. You don't have a right. I remember telling a man that one time that man's your brother. And you don't have the right to treat him as anything other than your brother until the church puts him out or he's found guilty of some unrepentance and he doesn't want to repent. But if he's in the church and he hasn't been accused of anything sinful and the church hasn't brought charges and dealt with him, he's your brother. Treat him like it, love him. Amen you y'all got quiet on me. Can somebody say hallelujah here this afternoon? Oh, yeah. But that's what John has to do with. My point was is that the doctrine of the gnostics that brought loose living also brought hatred because wherever selfishness raises its head is where people quit getting along together. And they quit loving their brother. And John has to John says it very clearly. The man that hates his brother and says he's walking in light is a liar. Man that says he's walking in light and hates his brother. John says he's a liar. Tie it back to John chapter 8. The devil's a liar. He's the father of the lie. The lie is from the devil. All falsehood began with the devil. All darkness began with the devil. Truth is in Christ. He has a monopoly on truth. And you and I are walking in the light. Amen. And in the love of God. So your second point we conclude right here about discipleship is this. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, and this is what we're preaching. He said, go make disciples. Go make people who will follow in my light and the people who follow my life will live in habitual righteousness, not sin. That's why we are brought together with them. We are not merged with sinners. We are merged with saints. You and I cannot live in peace with sin. We can live in peace with righteousness. Amen.